So it's great to have huge goals. It's great to have transformational goals. But every single one of those is the climb of your life. And just like I did on that bridge, you're standing at the ground looking up and it looks almost impossible. And if you just put your focus and break that down into one little step, it's achievable and you get to celebrate. Hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. Well, we're not missing a beat getting started with Human Resolve, our first podcast, and we have an incredibly special guest, Karen Manji who's a two-time, about to be three-time author and a wonderful speaker on a variety of topics, is kind enough to join us. Karen has had a, a wide array of stops in her career, but currently serves as vice president, customer, and market insights at Salesforce, a TEDx speaker and author of the new book, Working From Home, Making the New Normal Work For You. It's uh, great to have you join us, Karen. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. I always enjoy these conversations because I get to learn a little bit too, both from what we talk about and from what we hear back as feedback from the audience. So I encourage everyone to participate and share their ideas and, and make this better by what we learn. Well, Karen, I think hopefully today we've got a chance to not only learn about where you're headed in terms of the future of working and working from home, but also hear a little bit about your journey. You've had an, an interesting career and a lot of different learnings along the way. You've written about those, some personal, some professional, and hope to be able to dive into those a little bit more. But you, this latest book you've written about working from home, something that you're familiar with doing and has really been a disruptive life event for so many different people. How, how have you been able to cope with that personally? And how have you been able to help other people through that process? Thinking back, the first time I did an interview about working from home was in 2002, believe it or not. So I like to say I was working from home before it was cool or coerced. Now, that's a two-sided coin. So on one hand, I thought, well, great. I'm an expert at working from home. I mean, I've been doing it practically for forever. Like everybody else who's listening, I've discovered that even when you know how to do something, doing it in a new context can feel totally different. And so in my case, as time evolved, I really became more of a work from anywhere employee because I was out seeing clients, whether that was driving to them or flying to them. And so like everyone, it was a very different experience to lose that variety of changing locations and literally have the only option for work to be in the space where I also live. And so it forced me to really get really curious about what does success look like in this context and what adjustments can we all make so that we can live and work in a more sustainable way. Insights and data seem to be in your DNA. That's been what you've done your career and a graduate of, of Ball State University, a Hoosier native. And how did you get into that field? Is that always something that you, have you always looked at problems like this, like you're looking at the work from home challenge? Have you always been driven to try and gather insights? I've always gravitated toward people's stories. I love to hear about whether that's the background of 
how someone found their career or their best friend or their dream house, whatever that is, you know, my true north has been stories, you know, whether that's stories of people's success or their setbacks or their comebacks. And so what I love about the job that I get to do and being able to do activities like write books and blogs is I get to hear stories and share some of my own, ideally in service of helping us all deliver outcomes and really unlock some new success. So to me, sometimes the data helps point me toward where I think there could be a really interesting story. It helps me think about where do I want to go deeper? What looks like an outlier? You know, maybe that journalistic background a little bit, one of my degrees from Ball State, really thinking about where's the story. When you think about what's happened over the last six months in the world, there's so many stories that could be told and so many that will be written for years to come. As you've been out talking with people and meeting with organizations, are there stories that stick out to you? The stories that stand out to me are how people are becoming so resourceful during this period of time and how people are using their full portfolio of skills to deliver some present value. And I'll I'll give a couple of examples I've noticed in organizations, people are really trying to focus on how do you help your employees be healthy and well? You know, not just great workers who are continuing to deliver outcomes, but how do you really focus on their well-being? And I'm amazed at how successful programs are that are kind of crowdsourced, right? When they say, hey, we want some ideas of ways we can get people together and do something fun, or we all need to invest in maybe some new skills or, you know, how can we maybe work less. And we need some ideas from people and what people have come up with. I mean, I've discovered even from my own coworkers, one of my colleagues is a very successful painter. You know, so he's teaching us a little bit about painting. I've watched other people step up and say, hey, I'm excellent at, you know, Twitter. Let me help you build your thought leadership following. And I can do that in five minutes. These little snippets of skills, you know, another organization that folks who stepped up and said, hey, I'm trained in guided meditation. I can take you through that. Someone else said, I'm a chef. I'll share some quick recipes if you're forced to cook at home and maybe that isn't your skill. And what I think that's remarkable about the fact that we're having a universal human experience of work and life really shifting is that every skill and every person is relevant and can contribute and can bring something forward that's of value. And that idea of well-being and especially the emotional well-being component has been a big part of what you've written about uh, your first book, Success with Less, back in October of 2016 when that was released. That was a little bit about your own journey through well-being. And how much of that do you get to, do you find that, you know, having written that book and gone through that journey personally has allowed you to better empathize and understand other people's stories as you hear them? Well, the crux of writing that book was because I hit a point in my life where the formula that I had always used for success was no longer effective. I mean, I was the kid who loved the chore chart where you would accomplish these little tasks each day as defined by your parents. And then you would get those lick and stick gold stars. I mean, they look amazing, but they taste disgusting if you remember (laughs) that point in history. Well, I loved those gold stars, right? That approval, that getting something done. And so what I took forward into the workplace then was just say yes to things and make it look easy and then deliver these results. And that formula only scaled to a certain point when I hit a major medical crisis and 
I couldn't say yes to anything else. And probably for the first time, I was forced to confront that we literally have finite time and finite energy. And you have to get really clear about defining success for you so that you can put your best energy toward what matters most, but also so that you can take the obligations and people and experiences out of your life that no longer serve you or move you closer to that goal. And so a lesson I found that's perennially relevant that I learned the hard way through a major medical setback and and really a long road to recovery that I find is still a really relevant message for our time is success is as much about what you divest as where you invest. So if you're going to say yes to something, what can you say no to to make room for that yes? The other interesting thing that you talk about when you so talk about that major medical event that you had, and you've, and you've talked openly about this in, in interviews and the experience you went, that vulnerability component is not easy for people to do to go through a major event like that, to then feel comfortable to be able to share. I mean, multiple years that you were going through that that journey and the early signs when you realized, wow, am I really, you know, am I really just kind of working too hard or am I, is there actually something else that's wrong? Walk us through that that journey that you were on through those years and how did you feel comfortable being able to raise your hand and share that story, which is really tough for people. And I think in, a, in times like this now, especially going into you know, the winter months during the pandemic, you know, mental health and and resiliency become really difficult for people to to cope with. I'll never forget the morning that I got up and looked into the mirror and saw my own reflection staring back. And I didn't recognize who I was. And it's not because I was making life choices I couldn't reconcile. It was my hair was falling out. My skin had turned gray. And my eyes had literally changed color. So when I say I didn't recognize myself, I literally didn't recognize myself. I had also gained about 50 pounds without having a baby or a correct medical diagnosis. And at that moment, I felt such despair and I felt so alone and I felt so hopeless. And for me, three and a half years of being chronically undiagnosed, about another five years, once I found out I had pesticide poisoning, if you're going to pick an illness, I don't really recommend that one. But uh, so d- don't drink a cup of pesticides tonight after you listen to the podcast. But you know what happened in that time was I was really looking for answers. I was looking for hope. I mean, I knew that I did not want to live like that for the rest of my life. And the invitation to tell my story came in the form of being asked to do a motivational speech, which I thought sounded horrible to close out a conference. I only said yes, because the woman who asked me is just the most lovely human being. And so I feel it it was a favor. It was a favor. (laughs) I feel powerless to say no to her because she does such good in the world. And what I framed up in the story at that point in my journey was this discovery that we all have these moments. We use this phrase, right? It gave me pause. And usually when we're saying that, it's because there's been a crisis. You know, someone has passed away that we care about. We've lost a relationship that's important. We've lost a job. I mean, oftentimes we use that phrase when the pause is forced on us, like my major medical situation. And when that pause is forced, I discovered you feel very powerless. The flip side, though, was also true. When I took a pause and said, hey, my most important goal, success to me at that point in my life was, I want to be healthy enough to enjoy my life. 
And when I chose to pause saying yes to everything and people pleasing, I felt empowered. Because I chose the pause, it kind of energized me and I felt different because I did that pause in order to put energy toward what mattered most. And as I started to share that story a little bit, people I noticed would react by telling me really personal stories of their own medical struggles or their own pivots in life that were these crisis moments of reckoning. And I mean, it often involved tears and confessions and people asking for referrals to my doctor. And I thought, I've got to tell this story. Now, with that said, that sounds very easy, but you don't go from a life of kind of being a people pleaser and, you know, living by your LinkedIn profile, which is a beautiful veneer to like this soul bearing story. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I mean, what kept me going is I just thought to myself, how could I help someone not feel the weight of that totally alone moment? that I felt when I was staring into the mirror. But even with all that courage, literally the night before my book was going to go to print, I called my publisher and said, I'm not doing it. I'm out. <laughs> I'm but sure that was well-received. Oh, it was, I was fabulous. And I mean, I, I was all manner of hysterical, right? Because for the first time it hit me that it wasn't just going to be my family and friends who knew my story and cared about me that were going to read it like total strangers. Like every person I could ever date again could buy this book <laughs> and read this story. Like, me every future boss. And I was like, no, this is ridiculous. So I would love to tell you it was just seamless. And, you know, even with the best intentions, it was fabulous. It was scary and it was overwhelming. And fortunately, my publisher was like, calmly consider the following, you know, (laughs) why are you doing this? I was like, you know, I want to help people. You know, I think people need to hear the other side of ambition at all costs. I think people need to hear the other side of saying yes to everything. I think people need to hear the other side of keeping up appearances and have the tools to find a way forward. And he was like, then focus on that. You know, how are they going to do that if it looks like everything's perfect and you always have it all figured out? You found the vulnerability was met with what? When when your story got out there? Oh, the vulnerability was met with acceptance. I mean, I still to this day get messages. I mean, one that stands out to me... It's a woman who read the book who also had been on a very long medical struggle to the point that she was so depressed, she was contemplating suicide. And she was like, you know, reading your book for me was the, was really a turning point that reinforced being my own healthcare advocate and finding someone who believed in me and would partner with me. And it's been a long journey, but, you know, I took those steps and I battled forward and I thought, you know, it's more about her and about her story. But when I get messages like that, it's like, yes, when I hear a story like that from someone else, I meet that with acceptance and kindness and compassion. And when I was the one being vulnerable, I had that same experience. And I thought, okay, more of this, you know, we need more of this. We all need more of this. How have you found when you've told that story that people, you know, it's that balance of personal and professionalism, right? I might be able to try and work on that personally, pausing, pondering, you know, How do I do that professionally? And I think HR leaders often find themselves in very difficult positions because you you deal with a lot of life events like that, that folks are, are coping with, and you've got to figure out how to help them balance through that. How have you seen that done in practice? Meeting crisis with compassion is always the first step. And I have so much respect for HR professionals and people who are really in a position of meeting employees literally as a whole human being. Every aspect of 
fear and uncertainty and worry and hopelessness, you know, all of those feelings and what it takes to be present in that moment for each person is a very special gift. And I know a very cultivated discipline and we need, we need more of that. What I was worried about, and I think a lot of people worry about this too, is if I admitted in the workplace that I was imperfect or I needed a break, I thought I would get passed over for promotions. I wouldn't be taken seriously. People would think, oh, you know, you're not that interested in your career. You don't have what it takes to, you know, be tough enough and make it at this level. And so when I was on that journey of kind of the learning to pause and kind of recovering, uh, one of the things that an executive coach really encouraged me to do was to take my first actual vacation, probably of my career, where I did not check anything for work. So I was working at a, at a Fortune 50 company <laughs> at the time. And in the two-week vacation that I took, I have some shocking news to share with listeners. The company did not go out of business. <laughs> it was just in. It's just in. It was a remarkable discovery. I don't, I don't even understand how that was possible. I was clearly so valuable. I needed to work all the time. But when I came back, here's what stood out to me. And I, I think this really was a turning point for me as a leader. I didn't realize that my always on behavior and this trying to present this perfect image set the tone for my team that if they wanted to get ahead, they had to show up that way also. So I, I unintentionally paid forward my kind of bad habits and tendencies. And so when I came back from that vacation, this is what stuck with me to this day about how powerful vulnerability is in the workplace and how critical it is uh, to make space for people to show up as real and authentic. My team said, we are so glad you finally trusted us enough to take a break and leave us here to be in charge. Mm. That's compelling. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to be listening and have to reflect on their own because that's the case. I mean, how many times do you go on, you try to get a little bit of time away and you're checking something and you're not in the moment there, right? You're also missing out on that moment because you're trying to pull back to what you think is is most important at that time. And I think that's also, you know, to spin that forward to, to talk about today's world in the remote workforce that even drives higher anxiety because you have people that feel more disconnected as they're not able to walk down the hall or stop by somebody's desk and check in. And so the various modes and methods of communication become more difficult. Where do you see that headed? How do you see people being able to find ways to create that trust factor in the workplace? Well, the first thing is distraction is the new dismissiveness. So it used to be that, you know, you might walk by your boss's office or a colleague to have a conversation and they're still looking down at their laptop and kind of typing and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you had that feeling like I'm not being paid attention to. <laughs> Maybe you got an answer to your question or you felt to some degree seen and heard like, well, my boss at least knows I'm here and knows I'm thinking and how hard I'm working. And what happens now that we are so often on video together when you're the leader or the colleague who looks away for a moment at your phone or is doing that typing behavior, everything is magnified. I mean, the reality is we're all broadcasters now. Whether you wanted to be in a television career or not, you kind of are. <laughs> and imagine if a sports broadcaster or Jimmy Fallon, you know, looked down and quick sent a text during the broadcast or, you know, the stand-up at the beginning. Be you odd. Know, the same thing happens. And here's human nature. Let's pretend you're giving a big presentation to a customer, a boss, a colleague, whatever, but you're trying to get a yes. You've worked hard to prepare. And you notice that 
that the person you're presenting to that you want that yes from looks away or they appear to be doing something else, what happens? Your brain instantly starts to fill in a story. Oh my word, oh my word, I'm, I'm bombing. This is going terrible. How do I adjust? What do I do? It's like this panic moment because our human tendency is to fill in a story about why that person is distracted. And usually that story is that someone is dismissing you. And so I think the first piece of this whole trust equation is when I am looking at you and appear to be attentive to the message that you are delivering to me, in that moment, I'm building trust a little bit at a time that you are important and that you do matter and that I am focused on what you're saying and that you're not invisible to me. I think the next piece is what you talked about. I mean, the two questions that are being discussed and asked in every organization around the world that I I get asked all the time from leaders, it's how do I know my employees are working? And for employees, it's how does my boss know how hard I'm working? And so that matter of trust, right? People get very tempted to buy these kind of spyware products or do this micromanagement behavior where, you know, everybody's going to get on a call at the top of the hour or fill in the, you know, collaborative document about what you've done every hour. And the reality is at this point, what organizations have to solve for is distributed teams require distributed ownership. So you can't have the same decision-making process or ownership thresholds that you had when you could see people in person. And when a leader releases a threshold of decision-making or ownership of a task, it says without stating it overtly, I trust you to handle this. And that's what managers and, and teammates have to figure out how to, how to do that differently. You, you touched upon the idea of leadership in this new age, we'll say. I mean, and, and there's still a lot to be found out about what the future of work will look like and things like that. But when you've, you've now written a couple of books, about to release a third, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But as you spent your career in insights and looked at what makes successful teams, what makes success happen, you've written a book on it. What are the things when it comes to leadership that you're seeing shine through right now? When you look at organizations that are having success and finding new ways to lead differently or just leading effectively here, how do you see that coming to light? You know, this time is being called the great pause or the great reset. And what I think is this time is an invitation to authenticity. You know, every leader is now being invited to show up at your authentic self because you can no longer pretend like you don't have kids or you don't have a pet or you don't leave to get your hair cut or whatever that looks like for you. And that authenticity, just like we were talking about vulnerability, is uncomfortable. And it's also a skill that can be taught. And this is where I think there's really a strong call to action for our HR professionals to be business partners and help senior leaders, especially, and all people managers think through what is the training that they need about crisis communication, about connection, about vulnerability. Because if your organization has largely functioned on being a go-to-the-office culture or where people can be in person frequently, this is a really significant shift. And at first, we were all trying to survive, which is great. And then it was kind of the honeymoon is over, but it's now, right? As we look ahead to people asking, how long is this going to last? And we don't know the answer to that question. The reality is people need new skills to lead in this new context and in a new way. And so now is the time to step back and take a pause and take stock of 
Where do you invest? And I'm very passionate that that middle layer of managers is critical to the success or failure of work from home or a distributed workforce at your company because they're under pressure to deliver up and they're also intercepting the reality of how employees are really feeling and what they're needing. So if you're going to start somewhere, you know, with thinking about the training or, you know, being the HR partner that steps up, I really think to that middle layer of managers and how do you help them feel seen and heard and how can you make some purposeful investments in elevating them and gifting them and equipping them with the skills that they need to lead effectively now? Something that was relevant for a long time that's had a spotlight even shine brighter in that specific role within an organization, I would say. Very much so. I was thinking back to being a middle manager in my career, and I was thinking about how I've never worked so hard to have so many people believe I was doing nothing. Right? I mean, you know, my employees. <laughs> Is that a T-shirt? I mean, yeah, you put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> Maybe that's our conference T-shirt, right? But it's like you know, your employees are like, "Oh, I could do her job. What's she really doing anyway?" And then you know, senior leaders are like, "Why aren't you delivering more? What have you sold in the last thirty seconds? What are you doing for me right now?" And I just thought, you know, and that was in a time when we could be together in person. So my heart is so with you know, that middle layer of managers, it's it's a difficult job. It's an always on job. You know, it's one that requires a lot of diligence to set boundaries and routines and rituals to, you know, put and keep work in its place and not totally burn yourself out in the process. And, And I think it's an area where we're going to see a lot of shifts of people raising their hand and saying, you know what, I don't think it's worth it. I think I'll go back to being an individual contributor where at least, you know, I've got a boss that's probably paying attention to me or or I don't have the stress that I'm feeling right now or the weight of this responsibility. Well, Karen, your books have been wonderful. If you've not had a chance to read them, I'm, I'm going to go through the two again. One just got released and that's the book we're talking about here, Working From Home, Making the New Normal Work For You. If you've not read Karen's first book, Success With Less, which was released back in 2016, it was a phenomenal read. We've heard a little bit about that. and. If you're not busy enough during a global pandemic, you've found a way to write your third book, which is Listen Up, How to Tune Into Customers and Turn Down the Noise. What are readers going to be able to experience in that third book? How to have success with your customers. And when I think about the uniting theme of those three books, I think about myself as a lifelong student of success. And so that first book, Success with Less, is about you know, how do you succeed in your life? How do you really define what that means and give yourself permission to claim that and go make some changes? Working from home, all about how to succeed from anywhere. You know, success is not a location and it's not a destination. And then the Listen Up book is all about how to succeed with your customers. You know, some new questions to ask, some ways to unlock the future with your customers, and also opportunities to make sure that You're making the most of every person in your organization, being able to contribute to the success of your customers, but also innovating for and with your customers. I mean, people that are listening to this, Karen, that are going to think this is inspiring, so appreciative of your vulnerability and the way you've gone about this. And then they're going to think, they're going to ask for advice on how do I get started? How do I start to allow myself to go into that space and really focus on myself in that new way. What's your advice to somebody who hears this and needs to figure out how to focus on themselves in that way? 
we all talk about these bucket list experiences or items. And one of mine had been for years that I wanted to climb the Sydney Harbour Bridge in Australia. For some reason, I was always fascinated with Australia. And I finally made that trip happen. It was kind of my gift to myself after I got my all clean health diagnosis. And what was so interesting is when you walk up toward the building to go inside and get trained and get your equipment and wisely have a breathalyzer test, (laughs) (laughs) there's a, I saw this banner and it was hanging off the side of a light post and it said the climb of your life. And then you go inside and you get some training and you put on the equipment and you practice And when you go outside, you actually get tethered to the bridge, clearly for safety reasons, and you're wearing a headset. So the guide who's ahead of you can give you instructions and maybe share some commentary. And I remember standing at the bottom of that bridge and looking to the top and realizing I couldn't even see it. And I mean, this was a goal I was passionate about. I mean, this was a miniature version of defining success. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And so we started taking these little steps up and every so often the guide would just pause and he would take this deep breath, like, (sighs) and he would look around and you could feel the energy of the group trying to surge him forward. Like, let's go. We've got a goal, man. We're getting to the top of the bridge because we were trying to get there to watch the sunset, which is one of my all time favorite experiences. And we were about halfway up and he could feel the energy, right? And the anxiousness. And he said, I want you to take a pause and I want you to look around and take this all in. Because if I don't remind you to slow down, you're going to miss how many steps you've already taken forward because all you're focused on is how many steps you have left to take. You are on the climb of your life. I thought, isn't that so poignant? Because that goal looked so big from the ground and really it was one small step. And that's what I offer. It it doesn't matter your starting point. You know, if you're struggling with your boss, managing your learning with your kids, you know, how to get people to listen to your great idea at your job. When you set that goal, break it down into the smallest little tiny step you can take. And then celebrate that. So if that's, you want to go back to school and get your MBA, great. First step, ask somebody who's gotten their MBA what to expect. Awesome. You took one small step forward. Next, maybe you start looking at a few programs. Maybe that takes you 10 or 15 minutes. That's success. So it's great to have huge goals. It's great to have transformational goals. But every single one of those is the climb of your life. And just like I did on that bridge, you're standing at the ground looking up and it looks almost impossible. And if you just put your focus and break that down into one little step, it's achievable and you get to celebrate as long as you take a breath and let yourself enjoy it. What a beautiful picture that is. Karen, thank you so much for sharing some thoughts, your insights and your perspective uh, so vulnerably with us here today. And Karen will be obviously releasing her third book, Listen Up, How to Tune Into Customers and Turn Down the Noise in October, but Working From Home, Making the New Normal Work for You is just out. And also on October 28th, as part of Resolve Increments, Karen will be our keynote. You can sign up at resolveindy.com to hear more 
from Karen. Karen, thank you so much for being with us on Human Resolve today. Thank you. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging first person BA and using hashtag human resolve on social media. Oh.